Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. All right, Ben. So today's topic is uh, flourishing in a VUCA world, agile, agility, and why it matters. What are we going to talk about today? So we're going to talk about a couple things today. Today in the podcast, we're going to discuss this idea of VUCA, V-U-C-A, and what it means for business and for the rest of us. We're also going to talk about the notions of agility and agile and what they mean. And we'll also provide some practical examples of agility and agile and related implications for employees and managers, trying to break this stuff down and make it accessible and meaningful to our listeners. Yeah, uh, so great. So the origins of VUCA and and why it's uh, relevant. I mean, does does this have anything to do with the Vulcans from Star Trek or something? (laughs) Maybe, but I don't think so. Uh, So VUCA is an acronym. That stands for Volatility, Uncertainty, Complexity, and Ambiguity. And as far as I can tell, uh, it has some origins back at the U.S. Army War College, where some social scientists there were trying to figure out what kind of environment their strategic leaders were going to need to operate in. And they had a big conference and got people together, all these different ideas, and came up with this idea of VUCA as a descriptor of the kind of broader geopolitical environment, saying, you know, these strategic leaders are going to need to deal with a lot of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And that was uh, back in the early 90s. And so this was kind of a framework for them thinking about the, uh, the context for leadership at that point. And this idea uh, has kind of become synonymous with overall turbulence and so forth, and has become more and more popularized in the popular business press, um, trying to describe kind of what uh, outside of the military people are dealing with uh, in running their organizations, both kind of externally, strategically, as well as internally within their organizations. Yeah, you know, like one of the things that I find with a lot of these business topics, um, well, I think, you know, industry kind of got to be kind of set in its way you know, once you establish some market dominance, say like an IBM or a GM, you, you kind of just kept the um, the ship going in a certain way. You know, it's like more like steering mm-hmm. an aircraft carrier than it than it is, say, like a little fishing boat or something. Right. Um, but then when you know, and the origins of VUCA may have and probably even likely came before the military. It's just, a, I'd say it got popularized by the military because especially mm-hmm. when we saw, you know, we started in these environments. So for those of you that don't know, Ben and I actually met in Afghanistan. So we do have experience um, in these places, both of us with military backgrounds. But uh, there wasn't like a one plus one equals two uh strategic environment in uh, both Iraq and Afghanistan. And and honestly, not in places like Vietnam and and other places. So we had to come up with a paradigm and started fishing in both business and, you know, other literatures from different things. How, what's the best way forward in these complex, ambiguous environments, right? Yeah. 
So yeah, that's right. So Ben, so as as business people start struggling with this stuff, as more competitors, you know, we the common term that I see is it's disruption. And you know, if you if you want to, you know, for a while there, it's like if you wanted to get funding for your startup, you had to use the word disruption. You're like, oh. <laughs> yada yada yada, disruption. Give me your cash, right? Um, That's right. So with all the disruption that is actually happening with globalization, automation, um, the digital revolution, a lot of software development, those kinds of pieces, um, people are looking for something to deal with that. And VUCA is one of the paradigms they use to talk about the environment that a lot of companies and organizations find themselves. So, you know, nonprofits as well. Um, Absolutely. So... Is VUCA increasing, Ben? Like, I mean, that's that's one well, of those things. Yeah, I mean, I think um, th- that's an important question. And maybe before we talk about that, it- it's important to think about what are we actually talking about with these different aspects of VUCA, right? So what is volatility? Well, volatility typically refers to a change in the rate of change or the pace of change. So it's this idea that change is not necessarily a linear type of uh, activity, right? So that change is something that happens with more and more um, of a rapid pace. The amount of change that you experienced last year may not be exactly the same as the amount of change you experienced this year. And that in some instances, it's actually more of an exponential relationship. Um, You can look at, for example, you know, the uh, rapid pace of technological advancement and so forth. So that's volatility. Uncertainty is about the unpredictability of the future. And what's interesting is that, you know, at the same time, we have lots of uh, talk about things like predictive analytics and trying to figure out, you know, what trends mean and so forth. Um, But, you know, those are still not, you know, crystal balls that that help us know exactly what's going to happen. At at their very best, those types of, of tools, predictive analytics and so forth are you know, looking at what's happened already and seeing what might happen in the future. So uncertainty is the U. Complexity has to do with the increasing uh, interconnectedness of organizations, the nuanced nature in which markets work, where something may happen in one part of your organization and you have unintended consequences elsewhere. You may have something that happens in one industry that affects another industry in unexpected ways. And then the final piece is ambiguity, and ambiguity is a little different from uncertainty in that ambiguity is uh, more like the fog of war, you know, whereas uncertainty is uh, an unpredictability about the future, um, ambiguity is more about, you know, trying to figure out what something means. And the way I like to think about this is it's kind of the phenomenon that happens when you have a bunch of smart people sitting in a room, and they're all looking at the same problem. They all have the same data, and they come up with individually different solutions to that problem. And here's the thing. All of those solutions seem plausible and seem potentially right. That's ambiguity. Uh, So that's how it's a little bit different from uncertainty. Yeah, yeah. So a couple things come to mind with that. So, um, you know, we work in the consulting space. We have a firm together. And I feel like when I look at other consultants that are out there in in the same space we are, you know, there, there's kind of, I don't know, two food groups that I see there. 
One, there's, oh, well, we'll bring in some consultants to do some process improvement, right? And that's all that classic MBA, how fast can we make a widget? How efficient can we do it? How do we do it with Mm -hmm. less people, right? And then there's kind of that strategic consulting, which is how do we navigate the broader business environment? I mean, I was talking to the CEO of one of our clients yesterday who has... uh, two key staff members um, that are probably going to be leaving. And Mm. I remember the frustration in his voice saying like, hey, when is this just going to settle in? (laughs) Um, So like, what you know, and we talk about the older industry that kind of sets its course and gets going. And lots of times we kind of snidely criticize, you know, these, you know, People, you'll never need more than this minimus RAM for your computer. And like, haha, you know, that guy was really off in left field. Look how short-sighted. But, but really, um, it can be hard as an individual to deal with this much change when, you know, at the end of the day, you kind of just want to go home and chillax with your family or, or kick open a cold beer and have a relaxing afternoon, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you still can do that, of course, but uh, I think it is um, kind of a sign of maturity in at least today's environment uh, for leadership to think, um, you know, that it's it's not so much about looking for the next plateau of stability than it is trying to figure out how can we be continually nimble in this environment, right? And I think that kind of brings us to that question that, that you posed a little bit ago about is VUCA really increasing? Um, and you know, I, I think it, it always kind of feels like it is. I have some data on this from, uh, you know, a study that we did where we got about 1200 leaders to chime in, um, on what they perceived in terms of levels of VUCA in their environments and some disruptive trends and what they're doing about it. And, uh, you know, they, they said, yeah, we, we, on average expect more VUCA in the next three years than we've had in the previous three years. Uh, you know, so I think it's it's interesting. A lot of CEOs would probably um, be nodding their heads quite violently if, if I read this quote to them. If I said, "So this is," I did not write this, but this is a quote, um, and I'll tell you who it's, who it was from here in a, in a moment. But he, the, this 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 person wrote, "Measured by the external and obvious incidents of its progress, time certainly flies these days. Momentous events come swiftly into view, shoot rapidly by." and with equal speed disappear into the past, crowded out of sight and mind by the successors which tread upon their heels. Nor is this due only to the immediateness with which intelligence is transmitted to the four quarters of the globe, the facility of physical movement, and for the communication of facts and interchange of thought between persons or nations cooperating to a common end. The bequests to us of the last century have accentuated perceptibly the pace of mankind, the making of history. You know, I think a lot of people, a lot of our, the folks we work with and encounter in industry, they probably identify pretty closely with that, that idea that time certainly flies these days. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And well, Ben, why don't you tell them when that was written and, and by who? Yeah. <laughs> so, so this is a, uh, a quote from the, the famed maritime strategist, uh, U.S. Navy Admiral Alfred Thayer Mahan. And the funny thing is that he wrote this in 1906. Yeah, for me, the only giveaway <laughs> was uh, the use of the word bequest. 
Yeah. <laughs> which that's right. Which I think if you just modernize the language a little bit, that'd probably be most of the people that we interact with out out in the business space, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, uh at least in in military circles and if you, you know, read some older writings, there's talks of, you know, these ideas of VUCA um throughout history. And uh you know, I so I think that this is something that we've always been wrestling with as humans always been trying to figure out how we're going to deal with this adversity and change and how we're going to flourish in an ever-changing environment when, by our very nature, we like stability. And this, so this is just a tension that's always there. Um, and, you know, I, I think that there, at the strategic level, there are some things that will never really change. Um, but I think there is some evidence to suggest that in recent decades, with rapid advancement of technology, um, globalization, you know, the interconnectedness of our economy, uh, you know, there is some evidence that would suggest that, hey, these times are a little bit different. Uh, there is probably more turbulence in some ways than there ever has been. Uh, one kind of crude measure of this is just if we look at the, the Fortune 500 list, which is simply the a list that Fortune has, magazine has done um, for a number of years now, where they just rank the, the largest U.S. companies by revenue, just the 500 biggest companies that are headquartered in the U.S. And they started this in 1955. And if you look at that original list uh, in 1955, and then you look at the 2018 list, only 53 remain. So, you know, in other words, since 1955, 89% of those original 500 either went bankrupt, they merged, were acquired, fell off of the list for a year or more, and so it's kind of a crude measure, but it is a general indicator, I think, of volatility, at least. I'm um, telling us that there is, you know, there is VUCA. There's a lot of change in how organizations are structured, how um, progress is being made. You know, I think of we have a good friend, um, Mike Richardson, and he always has a quote about some of this stuff. Oh, do you remember what that what says that he's always yeah. saying about the chaos? Yeah, so he you know he talks a lot about VUCA and agility and stuff with with senior executives, and he has a great way of putting it. He says, you know, it's not not about the chaos. It's not about the VUCA necessarily. That's always going to be there, and you need to get used to it. He says it's about your relationship with that chaos that matters, and I think that's a really good way to think about it from an executive standpoint. Yeah, Ben. So I'd say the best practice or the kind of body of knowledge or, I don't know, business movement, whatever you want to call it, is stuff around what we call agility and agile, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the idea is like, well, okay, well, if we live in a VUCA world, a VUCA environment, well, what do we do, right? And so, <laughs> like, how, how do we thrive and, and, like, adapt and live in that chaos and, and not go nuts, you know? Um, and be able right. to have something that resembles mental health, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, I know that you published a paper um, with another one of our friends uh, in the Society for Industrial. Yeah, so I'll tell you a little bit about that. So the Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology, um, of which I'm a member and fairly active, um, they asked me to write a white paper uh, about agility. And the reason that they asked me that was they, every year they do a, um, a listing of kind of what, what their members see as the top 10 trends in 
industry, you know, the top big things to watch out for in the workplace. And uh, for the past several years, one of them has been uh, creating agile organizations. And so they said, let's, you know, let's do some white papers on these things, get some information out there as to help people. And so they asked me to write this white paper. And so I wrote this with, uh, with my good friend and, and uh, doctoral student, um, Scott Bible. And we, uh, we explored this idea and tried to put it in layman's terms. And we'll put a link up to this in the, the show notes so people can have access to it. It's, it's easily accessible on the web. Um, just talking about this idea of VUCA, but more specifically, how do we deal with it? How, what is agility? What is agile? And I mean, I like to use the, the British pronunciation of it, by the way. Some people say agile, but the, but the Brits say agile. And so I kind of like that one. Um, and they, but, uh, they did invent the English language, so. They, they did. So we'll, <laughs> we, I, like, I prefer to use the Queen's English when I say agile. Um, and so in this paper, you know, I, I, I try to make some distinctions between the two uh, in terms of agility, kind of writ large, thinking about what does it mean to be nimble as a leader, as a team, as an organization, uh, and then talking about some more specific methods and practices which kind of fall into this bucket of, of activities that we call agile. Um, so I, you know, I think starting kind of with this idea of agility, uh, this is fundamentally about being able to sense and respond to your environment quickly. And uh, I can think we can think of this as a capability that you can have either as an organization, as a team, uh, or as an individual leader. And it's, it's kind of a tough thing to look at from a research standpoint because there are the, all these different kind of levels of analysis going on there, right? So you study something at the organizational level that's a little bit different from the team level than from the individual leader level. And, you know, from a psychological standpoint, a lot of this work has been done kind of at the individual level. Um, so, you know, looking at what, what's called adaptive performance. And there's a, a well-known study that looked at this um, and kind of determined that there are a handful of, of competencies that are involved with adaptability at work at the individual level. So things like handling emergencies, handling work stress, solving problems creatively, dealing with uncertain situations, learning uh, new work tasks, technologies, procedures, interpersonal adaptability, cultural adaptability, and even physically oriented adaptability. Um, so, you know, this, this is kind of a, um, a framework for which we can understand some of of this adaptive performance stuff at the individual or leader level, what helps people be successful in a more VUCA type of environment. Yeah, and then let's let's clarify something here just a little bit. So like everybody talks about, you know, hey, is your company agile, bro? You know, <laughs> <laughs> do you even agile? I agiled yesterday, <laughs> you know. Um, I, had, I, I had an agile shake yesterday. There you go. <laughs> um, you know, anytime something kind of comes into the forefront of the community business community or even larger organizational community, you know, quickly consultants are going to come in and like, well, how do we like codify this and and monetize the fire out of mm -hmm. it, right? Um, so like with agility, like how we think about it is this is kind of how the organization's able to respond to its broader environment, right? Mm-hmm. But absolutely, but there's a difference, right, between agility and agile, right? Agile. I mean, I don't know. Do you say big A agile with a big A? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, just to kind of make that distinction, you know, when we're using agile as a noun, 
um, because it kind of refers to this entire set of methods and practices that, I, that we'll talk about here in a moment. Um, agility is that capability that you can have at either the individual, the team, or the organization level. Um, and it's essentially, again, about sensing and responding to change quickly. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's a capability you can have. It's something you can build over time. Um, and one way that you can do that is, or at least you can start to get there, is through some of these agile practices, um, at least kind of uh, as a way to get started, um, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so like, so let's talk about agile a little bit. You know, a lot of people who are super familiar with that come from some kind of technology organization, although it's definitely spreading and we help it spread, in fact, outside of software development companies alone. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people will say, oh, well, agile, you know, it got started with the agile manifesto, um, which is, you know, some guys went up to a ski cabin and said, what's jacked up with software development? What what's kind of a manifesto that might help guide a way to a better way? But it, it actually goes a lot earlier. You know, you've got the extreme mm. extreme programming movement and this whole host of I don't know. That's a whole episode on like the history of, you know, stuff that emerged into Agile. Yeah. Um, well, even even as you know, you've talked about in the past, um, you know, some of the stuff that comes not just from software, but from you know, hardware and, and even in manufacturing and some of those uh, older methods, uh, those have kind of a, a dose of Agile in them as well, right? Yeah, like, you know, so stuff like uh, Kanban uh, or Kanban, depending on which part of the country you're in, I suppose. But um <laughs> You know, some of the stuff came from like the Toyota production methods and all of these kind of things. There, there's kind of nothing new under the sun, yet new ways of putting it together for people to kind of understand. Scrum's a popular framework. Um, I know I was talking with a group of people um, outside of Atlanta that were talking, about, oh, yeah, we're agile because we scrum, but like they can't really, they can't even really speak to the larger issues of organizational agility. Um, because they're stuck in one paradigm of software development and a lot of this stuff comes under the agile stuff, which definitely, mm. definitely helps you do software better. Um, even though that's kind of a broad continuum and, uh, you know, vigorous discussion happens at conferences all about doing agile, right. Or, or whatever that is. But here we really want to contrast that with agility, um, Agility being the sensing to your environment, uh, sensing your environment and how to respond and agile being, you know, really a body of techniques and stuff that you can use as a response to that VUCA uh, environment, right? Right, right. So I think it might be helpful for our listeners who maybe aren't as well-versed or haven't been around this stuff before. Um, if maybe you could just describe, and we could just pick one of the popular frameworks, which is, uh, or popular sets of practices, which is Scrum. And what, what, what is Scrum aside from a rugby uh, a thing where everybody's kind of wrestling together? Um, what, what is it? And what, what does it kind of look like? And what does it involve? Well, I mean, I'd say officially it's Scrum is a set of stuff defined in the Scrum guide. So, I mean, it, <laughs> and I think they're pretty specific for it to be Scrum. It's got to be the Scrum guide. So. Um, it's really just a liturgy or a series of meetings that reflects and improves on everything you're doing, 
right? T- mm-hmm. Time boxing, that those kinds of things. So I definitely will put put the scrum guide in the show notes um, for those of you that are are interested. Um, also, a book um, we'll put in the show notes that kind of describes describes that response or that yeah. practice. Yeah, yeah. So it's a set of of rituals or routines that a team can go through in order to better uh, manage its workflow. Um, and do so in a way that's more responsive and is is very connected with what uh, the end customer, the end user is going to be needing, right? Right. So let, let's talk about some of these things uh, like agility and agile as a response to VUCA, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, 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 could, we have all this this turbulence in our environment. We have a lot of VUCA we're trying to deal with. Um, one way that we can do that is certainly by sensing and responding to our environment better, um, being more responsive to changes, uh, being more aware of those changes as they happen, trying to anticipate those changes before they happen. And, um, you know, one way we can think about this is, you know, some of the different ways that we can respond to the different pieces of VUCA. And, you know, we can, I think there's some distinctions we need to make here, but um, there's there's an article that I'll uh, put a link up to in the show notes that that describes some of this. But uh, you know, one way we can think about it is that you know, in terms of volatility, right, we need to have agility to deal with that. Um, but sometimes I've I found that, at least in the academic li- literature, people are oftentimes saying, "Well, agility is just this uh, having lots of extra resources to throw at stuff." in case things happen, like it's what we refer to as organizational slack, you know, and I I don't really see agility that way. Do you? Uh, Well, no, because first of all, a leaner competitor is going to beat you if you have, you know, just 50, 100, 1000 people just sitting on the bench waiting to respond to something that may or may not happen that year. Like not not many people have the, uh, the balance sheet to even float that, right? Right, exactly. Um, so, you know, I kind of actually see agility as as a capability you can have as an organization, not just a... And it has to do with deep, you know, cultural norms around how we behave, how we deal with risk, how we organize our teams, um, you know, wh- how we deal with failure, all those kinds of things. But I do think that... So in this article, and in, this is an article by... Um, uh, Bennett and Lemoyne. Uh, it's called What a Difference a Word Makes, Understanding Threats to Performance in a VUCA World. And um, these are two, uh, two scholars, one at, the, at Georgia State University, one at um, Georgia Tech. And we'll put a link up to this. But you know, they, they make a couple distinctions here, which I think are, are actually helpful. And one is that, you know, for example, with ambiguity, again, you know, not really understanding what the right way is to go, where there's lots of plausible alternatives or plausible solutions to your problem. One way you can deal with that is through experimentation and trying things in a smart way in order to rule out um, different possibilities and try to figure out what's going to work. Uh, has this been something that you've, uh, you've seen in some of the, the folks we've worked with? Uh, yeah, so, you know, the, the whole idea is you've got to be able to, well, I don't know, you have a sensing function is what I call it. Um, and I didn't invent that. I, I just forget where it's from. But you got to be able to sense the environment accurately. And then you need to have some kind of disciplined, governanced way to respond. So mm-hmm. um, one of the frameworks that I like to use is the Kinefin framework or Kinefin. 
um, based on this guy named Snowden. No relation to the um, whistleblower guy, but um, <laughs> uh, we'll put a show note on the Kenefin framework. But you need to have a way in which you can run experiments. And those experiments need to first be based off in a culture that is both flexible in its organizational model and has a good amount of data collection and information that can help guide guide those directions. Right, right. Yeah, and I think the uh, we'll definitely put up a, a nice um, explanation of the Kinevin framework that, that Snowden provides because that's a it's a good uh, decision making model and a, or a, a, a sense making model um, for how to identify what kind of situation you're in um, and then due to you know based on the nature of the situation that should guide your approach right is this a an experiment type of approach or is this or, or situation or is this something where I can just apply best practice that's what that can help you do. Um, so maybe it'd be a good idea now to kind of move into, so we've talked about kind of what VUCA is. We've talked about uh, agility and ja- agile and tried to define those. Um, now we could move into maybe talking about some practical examples and some implications and kind of what this might mean in terms of what, what organizations can do to try to increase their agility. Sound good? Yeah. So one of the things that I think that, you know, so organizations, they focus like, hey, we need to go agile. and mm-hmm. And so they immediately leap to these techniques such as Scrum and just start, you know, monkey see, monkey do um, those behaviors like, OK, now we're this is how a, this is a new process. It's more like a, oh, we're changing our process. This is how you're going to fill out your time card. Right. Uh, well, mm-hmm. this is how you're going to deliver projects. You're going to have a backlog and you're going to burn it down and those kinds of things. But really, those agile techniques need to nest, like we've been talking about, in that broader culture of agility. And what a lot of, not all, um, agile practitioners or consultants kind of lack is this organizational development, broader, holistic, the whole person kind of approach to what do we need to do as um, as an organization to train and equip our people, what are the kind of attributes that our people inside our organizations need to have so that we can be an organization that, that moves with agility, you know, Mm -hmm. um, that this becomes like part of our essence as a cohort of people trying to accomplish something. So um, in your paper, you talk about eight specific areas. Um, Ben, can we kind of walk through those briefly? Yeah, absolutely. So the first, uh, kind of a way that we can, or implication that we can take from the research that I've done on uh, on agility is that you need to lead that push towards becoming more responsive, becoming more of a sensing organization, becoming more agile. You need to lead with why, right? Um, and this this kind of goes to the, the basic uh, tenets of, of how change needs to be led within organizations, um, because this involves everyone, uh, I think you know you kind of alluded to it before, where a lot of times when an organization says we're going to go agile, uh, oftentimes it's just hey, let's make some processes a little bit different in one area of the organization. Uh, maybe it's your software folks who are going to do something a little bit different. That's usually what it means, and it's not, and, and it's it's a change in practices and some behaviors, and that's good, um, and it's it's not particularly easy, but it actually is easy com- when you contrast it with those deep things like culture and norms and expectations, some of that stuff that's harder to see, but so much more impactful. 
And so I think you got to lead with why. Um, and this is this is incumbent upon you know senior leadership to help to uh, orient their employees to help them understand why agility truly is a strategic imperative and what that means for them. And this is going to be a continual thing that leaders are going to have to reemphasize over and over again. Now I think it's also important to emphasize that agility isn't uh, you know we contrasted earlier with it's not just about having a whole bunch of extra resources. It's not uh, in our view what we call organizational slack. Um, and it's also not just reckless flexibility. Uh, you know, I've, I've come across some people who are like, oh, well, we need to be agile, so we're just going to chase every shiny thing, and the customer says this, so we shift immediately. But that's not necessarily what we mean there. Um, is, have you come across any ways in which, you know, how do you figure out that, that kind of middle ground? Well, you know, like, we, what are you talking about? Lead with why? Like, yeah. the challenge for that is, senior management has to come up with a reason why. I mean, it's not like mm-hmm. like the people in your organization are your children and it, and you can do a because I said so, <laughs> you know, kind, kind of approach, right? You have right. to have why, which means you can't even get to that why without a clarified strategy. And maybe you even don't know why. And so the the why is because we're conducting this experiment to learn this, and after that, we're going to come up with another why we're doing. Mm-hmm. And so, and then, you know, we can call it wheel spin or whatever. So, okay, well, we've got a reason why at the executive level, but then we go start talking to our mid-level management and down through the tiers in the organization. They don't know why. Like, why are we doing right. this? Well, because um, my annual performance review says I need to have two examples of teamwork. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's not a very good example. So you actually have to not only lead with why, but you got to have some quality whys that help, that are believable by people, that mm-hmm. are are worthwhile uh, doing, right? So, yeah. um, so, you, so that why actually has to be r- real. Um, and yeah. then that has to drive those kinds of behaviors uh, within the organization. But Vinny, right. what was the what was the exact question? Yeah, so how do you figure out that that uh, middle ground between um, you know agility and too much rec- reckless flexibility? Right, right. So, you, so the left the left and right limit is making sure that like, hey, what we're doing is related to this why or this mm-hmm. you know kind of prime mover that we're going to organize around. Um, so if you work at Amazon, well, why do you pack stuff into boxes? Because we have a customer promise, right. Of, you Mm -hmm. know, prime two day shipping or whatever it is. Um, so having a clear why, like you'll never at the top, you'll never be able to dictate the bigger the organization gets. Although we see CEOs in these, you know, 50 to hundred person organization that try to have a good handle on what everyone's doing, which you, you know, shouldn't necessarily be so um, dictatorial or however you want to say it about those things. But if you have a clear vision of why people can self-organize around um, everything that they do is related to kind of the goals of the organization, those why behaviors. Yeah. What I come back to is that it all has to be grounded in a well-developed organizational strategy and your, your vision, your mission, your values, right? Those are things that you would not be recklessly changing 
right? It, it's it's about how do we continually execute those in the best way and having a realistic, agile approach towards making sure that we're doing that on, on a continual basis, right? And uh, I, I think some of this kind of comes back to an old idea and uh, tool that we use in the military, and that's the idea of the commander's intent. So are you familiar with commander's intent, Chris? Yes, yes. Ad, yes. ad nauseum. Ad nauseum. So w- what is the idea behind commander's intent, and what is it about? Well, like a good example for uh, a commander's intent would be like to deny the enemy movement, right? And so your plan, yeah. your plan, your mission plan may be, hey, we're going to deny the enemy movement by blowing up a bridge. They won't be able mm-hmm. to move. But let's say you don't have enough explosives or something, or, you know, you get to the bridge and the explosives have, you know, I don't know, rain has ruined them or something. These are bad examples, but, <laughs> but maybe you could go put sugar in or salt into the tanks of the gas tanks of the other side's vehicles. Right. Right. So that is an example of, you know, in the fog of war and the fog of business, you're not going to be able to foresee every single thing. But if you have a why or a commander's intent, right, people can figure out other ways to accomplish the same thing through other means that are novel, unique, that you've never even thought of when you were making out the plan. And you'll never be able to plan stuff in this life that that will take into account all of those those things that just come up. Right. Yeah. And so you've got to actually make sure that everyone knows your intent. Uh, It's got to be a well thought out and and well-developed intent. Um, but it allows for individual decision-making at lower levels in the organization. Uh, it, it involves treating people like they're intelligent humans, not as semi-programmable robots. Um, yeah, and executives are mad all the time. Like, why, why are you guys yeah. so helpless? Where's the initiative? And they don't even realize that they've created that monster themselves through the mm-hmm. way they communicate within the organization and not having compelling reasons around why. And a good way of developing those teams to, to kind of achieve that. Um, which Ben, I, I think the second uh, item from your paper was train agile behaviors, right? Exactly. So yeah. what's that mean? So uh, you know what what we found is that most people and most organizations don't really know what agility looks like, um, and if you just you know are, are kind of. Um, either drawing upon your own experience or just Googling around trying to get some information. Or if you're, you know, on LinkedIn, you're going to see a bunch of people who are like agile coaches and stuff. And kind of part of the, uh, <laughs> I have, I have a, um, an acquaintance who, who calls it the, the agile industrial complex. Um, you know, there's this whole kind of world that's evolved around this whole thing, but it's all kind of segmented off in terms of, you know, how do we, how do we do stuff kind of at a tactical level with, with, Develop software development teams and so forth, um, but you know one way in which organizations and leaders and teams can start to understand agility is through adopting some of these different techniques, right? Be it something like Scrum, or you know, there's a whole host of other types of sets of practices and methods that can be helpful for the organization, or at least at the team level, to start start to understand. Okay. So maybe I need to approach planning in a different way. Maybe I need to approach prioritizing in a much more focused manner. Um, maybe you know I need to to be more cognizant of the fact that 
you know, when, when I have priorities set and somebody tries to interject a new one, that I need to talk to them about how that's going to affect my current plan, right? Um, and so these, I think that these types of methods can be helpful to start to get people oriented around what agility might look like. Um, and one part of Scrum that I particularly like, again, we, you know, we mentioned that Scrum is kind of a set of different rituals and practices around um, project management and team behavior. And uh, one thing that's, that's a, a fairly prominent feature of Scrum is this idea of the retrospective. So at the end of a, of a cycle of, of work called a sprint, um, the whole team gets together and talks about how we can operate better and how we can, you know, it's basically a reflection on how the work gets done how the team works together um, with a, a real focus on improving both. And that requires a lot of trust. It requires uh, openness and communication uh, and some good communication and feedback skills so that you can start to move forward and continually get better. Yeah, right. So when we talk about training agile behaviors, you know, people's like, oh, okay, well, that means we're going to do a sprint and we're going to have a retrospective. Actually, those are just like, things that you do, like an actual mm -hmm. agile behavior is taking what we talk about in the retrospective where, uh, you know, you focus on how you do the work and, and that those kinds of items that, that you actually incorporate your improves, which means you got to take some organizational time. It's not just about work, 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 but it's actually spending time improving how we work together as a, a team, like specifically in the scrum that focuses on people, processes, relationships, and tools. So an agile behavior is actually identifying the problem and daggone doing something about it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of what we call driving to done, right? Right. Absolutely. And that's a good segue into the, the third point, which is uh, creating great teams. So we talked about leading with why, Pra um, you know, training those agile behaviors and then creating great teams. And, you know, when, when I talk to organizations about the whole idea of teams and teamwork, the first thing you got to decide is whether or not a set of tasks are appropriate for a team. Uh, a lot of times we'll take things that are actually better suited for an individual to do, and we say this is a team activity, and that, that doesn't work well. Teams are best for tasks that are highly interdependent, that require interaction between people. And if that's the nature of the task, then a team is likely uh, a, a, an appropriate way to, to attack that task. Now, when you're considering how to create that team, uh, you, know, you need to select people who have the, uh, the requisite skills and knowledge uh, to contribute, and they also need to have a willingness to collaborate. So there's that interpersonal ability um, to work with other people. Uh, also supporting an environment where everyone feels like they're valued, has a voice, can speak up, uh, clarifying roles and team procedures. So oftentimes, you know, when, when people talk about team building, they talk about, you know, kind of cheesy stuff like doing trust falls and um, <laughs> maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe going out in the wilderness for a while. And while those things might be fun and maybe might increase a sense of camaraderie through a shared experience, uh, they're not necessarily going to lead to a great team. Um, what I think can be oftentimes very helpful for a team is to simply have clarity about what the team needs to do, what its tasks are, what its critical um, tasks are, and then 
clarifying the roles and responsibilities. Who's going to do what here and how are we going to get things done? And this may sound simple, but it's actually pretty hard and it takes some effort. Uh, but I think that oftentimes if you do that, you're going to set yourself up for success. And the other part of you know, creating good teams is you know, providing the team with the resources in terms of time, space, other types of tools that it may need to get, get its job done. Um, you know, teams, we do know from research that, you know, teams that have a shared knowledge of kind of who has what knowledge, who can do what, uh, and, and how we can communicate with each other, they tend to do, uh, much better and they can sense and adapt much better than teams that don't have that. Yeah. And and all of this is just like a super cliff notes. There is just gobs and gobs of information around Mm -hmm. creating great teams that organizations, uh, employees and managers should all, all really look at, um, on those, on those teams. So that been mm-hmm. the, the, the next, uh, next of the eight areas is, uh, empowering decision-making. Um, we were talking earlier about, you know, Hey, by having starting off with a why decision-making can happen at, at the lower levels. Um, but what does that mean more broadly for the organization? Yeah, so it means a couple of things. Um, so first of all, when when we use the word empower or empowerment, a lot of times uh, executives, senior leaders can interpret that to be, um, well, I'll just tell people you are empowered. Go 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 do it. Um, that's not really what we mean here. What we mean here is is about providing people with the frameworks, with the training with the ability, and also giving people the authority to make decisions based upon their expertise. Um, one thing that we know from some of the research on what we call high-reliability organizations, which are organizations like uh, naval aircraft carriers and nuclear power plants and so forth, um, is that you know they're working with high-risk technologies very frequently, and but they have much fewer, um, many fewer mistakes or accidents than we would expect, less than their fair share. And one reason for that is that they drive decision-making down to the level of expertise. They defer decision-making authority to those who have the most expertise uh, so that, you know, on that naval aircraft carrier, someone who's out on the flight deck and finds something wrong, some really low-ranking person, they have the authority and the ability to stop the entire operation. Right. Right. Um, and that's just an example of kind of allowing expertise and authority, you know, to, to really drive who has the authority there. Uh, and this can help because, you know, you, you oftentimes will have people in organizations who are perhaps lower level. Maybe they have more interaction with the customer or with the technology. Uh, and they actually have a better insight in terms of what what's going wrong or what what p- potential opportunities there are. Um, so you really have to create an environment and a culture in which people feel like they can uh, truly have uh, a voice and make a difference, regardless of their position in the kind of formal hierarchy. Right. And this and this is in a black and white scenario. So if you've been in an organization mm-hmm. where it's really command and control and you say, hey, we want more organizational agility. Um, OK, guys, you all get to decide now. Right. You are empowered, and actually, now you make all the decisions. Well, you can't go cold turkey. Maybe some people aren't the best people to be making those decisions. Maybe they need coaching on how to communicate. There's a whole um, host of things that you'd want to address before doing that. But as a knowledgeable manager who knows how to create teams, 
train agile behaviors, have a good definition of why you can start to move towards that um, more empowered side of the spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, that kind of leads us into the next one, which is support agile behavior. So, you know, we've talked about lead with why, train agile behaviors, create great teams, empower decision-making, and then you've got to support that behavior. And that's because, and this kind of ties into the last one, which is uh, promoting an agile culture. But, um, you know, oftentimes these behaviors can, as you already alluded to, Chris, they, they fly in the face of traditional hierarchy. You know, if you're deferring decision-making authority to those people who have the most expertise, and those people may not be people who have a lot of organizational power, um, that's going to be different, you know, in, in terms of, you know, how decision-making happens, how communication flows, um, than maybe you're used to in, in a normal hierarchy. So, well, yeah, so without, as a manager, you're judged, right? You're, you're just like, mm-hmm. okay, well now, now, uh, Williamson is going to come speak about what his team is doing. Well, mm-hmm. what if one of the people on his team saw something and was able to directly communicate that to the VP? who then socialized it. Well, a lot of managers would feel like, hey, everything needs to go through me. And sometimes that's an appropriate behavior, but it definitely slows down your organizational agility. Is it worth that slowdown? Those are things that you're going to have to take take a look at. So supporting agile behavior might be saying, uh, hey, I'm glad you went and went ahead and told the VP that that's great. And that VP would have the, you know, knowledge to, you know, weigh what was being said and, and what the appropriate response with that information would be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so you've got to support those types of behaviors, both kind of formally and informally embedding, for example, um, you know, some elements of, of these, these behaviors into, for example, job descriptions and performance appraisals and informal performance feedback. Those can be ways in which senior level leaders can really start to support agile behavior and show people that, no, I really do, you know, support, expect and reward these types of behaviors from, from our people. Right. And with, like you look at a lot of these annual reviews, it's like, okay, increase productivity by 4%. Okay, mm-hmm. excellent. But how was it operated? How would you evaluate, you know, this would be where the cultural or paradigm shift would be, you know, how in your annual or quarterly reviews or however you do that process, would you say, talk about how this person worked as a team um, Mm -hmm. or helped foster better team um, interactions? How about uh, communication? This person was transparent and communicated what was going on every step of the way. You know, those would be like some structural supports beyond the kind of the soft, soft supports for those agile behaviors. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so that kind of leads us into this next one, which is iterating towards better. Um, you know, a big part of being agile just by definition is that is the idea that you're continually receiving feedback and trying to improve based upon it. And this could be, you know, at the, at the kind of product development level, it's, you know, we're putting stuff in front of customers and we're quickly integrating their responses to it into our iterations towards making something better, moving that 1.0 to a 2.0 version, all that kind of stuff. Um, but it also has to do with, you know, other things throughout the organization. It could be, you know, your processes that you're putting in place. Uh, it could be, uh, you know, the feedback that's occurring within a team on different behaviors that are more or less helpful. And so, you know, there has to be an, a kind of this idea of a growth mindset um, and this is the, you know, having the belief that 
that people can and will uh, and, and do change and improve over time. Um, and, you know, sometimes this is where you kind of get what you uh, are expecting in terms of it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If I expect that, uh, you know, or if I believe truly that I can change, that the people around me can change, and we can all improve, then we're probably going to see some of that. If I truly believe that, you know, everyone's uh, behavior is fixed and we aren't able to improve, then I'm probably going to get that too. So this is about having that mindset towards continual improvement um, and trying to incorporate feedback about about performance and about um, quality into uh, your decision making about what you're what you're going to focus upon uh, in order to continually improve. Yeah, and if you're iterating towards better, um, actually iterating towards better rather than just talking about getting better. Like yeah. your organization is going to evolve and change in ways you can't even imagine that are for the positive and that, you know, like we talk about, are more responsive to that VUCA environment. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And then we talk about iterating towards better. You know, one of those things is like evaluate organizational structure. Now, mm-hmm. you know, iterating towards better may be changing how your organization is set up. Um evaluating that. That's one of those things where it's not an either or, a black or white, like, okay, now I'm going to sit down and master plan what our org chart looks like next year. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not, all right, guys, uh, depending on the environment, obviously, but all right, guys, you tell us how to organize. There's a little bit of handshake between both. Right, right. And, and so, you know, figuring out what your org chart is going to look like is it's kind of a, I mean, org charts in and of themselves are kind of a, a blunt instrument. Um, it's kind of a, a mechanistic type of approach towards an organization overall. It's kind of a, having this, this idea that an organization is a machine and that people are, you know, in these set roles and stuff. And it's, a, it's, it's comforting, I think, for, for some managers and for people to say, okay, here's where I, where I sit and so forth. But in reality, you, you take any org chart, I guarantee you that a lot of the work that happens happens in the white space on the organizational chart, um, not necessarily on those little lines and, and through the boxes and so forth, as you may imagine, right? Yeah, one of the, one of the best examples of that is what I, I call the, the Excel weenie role. Now, <laughs> you go into these like, uh, like larger organizations and every... Well, a lot of the different departments or sections will have, you know, they'll call them an analyst, uh, coordinator, project manager. But then when you talk to them, like, what do you do in your day to day? Oh, I do the Excel for the group. You know, I Mm -hmm. generate the reporting, which they should just actually make a career path for the Excel weenies of the world. (laughs) I've, I've definitely been one earlier in my career. But yeah. but that's an example where the org chart even speaks specifically to the duties, role, and responsibilities. And, you know, people will go to those job interviews and they're all ready for a project management role. But then they say, okay, well, what will I be doing day to day? And it's crunching Excel. And that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So even if you design the perfect org chart, like you said, all this work happens in the white space. Well, here's an example of like the person's not even doing the work that's listed in the org chart. And that's how things will happen and people will self-organize. Another piece Mm -hmm. of that white space is how are these groups, because there's tasks and demands that will happen that come from the environment 
that required a people to work what they call cross-functionally. Now, people will talk about, oh, we have a matrixed organization and all this kind of stuff, but there's still this idea of like, I have to work with somebody that doesn't write my performance review and actually yeah. have a bit of a remit to do something in that space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so when I, when I think about organizational structure, I think about, uh, you know, you need to take a close look at how communication flow actually happens in your organization um, in order, you know, how are people actually getting work done? Who do they normally talk to? How do they interact? And that's really how you should be organizing. And having a, an element of self-organization there is very important and providing people that flexibility. I mean, you could have kind of a notional org chart and then, and then just have the kind of a, an expectation that, hey, like, it's okay if people don't always communicate, you know, up and over to, you know, through their supervisor and supervisor and over to another supervisor and then back down. Like, direct communication is okay. If you want to be more agile right? Yes, yes, absolutely. If you do. Um, and, and that kind of ties into this last one, which is promoting an agile culture. Uh, and, you know, we mentioned this earlier, that this is hard. It's, it's just, it's a very difficult thing. Um, culture in and of itself is, is a, a deep set of, of norms. It's kind of the personality of the organization. It's kind of, you know, the way things get done around here. And, you know, if you only try to attempt, you know, becoming more agile through adopting a couple new techniques or trying to, you know, make one or one set part of the organization, one team more agile, holding a training session, that's not really going to work, right? It may change a few things here and there, um, but you need to have that culture and that mindset, which is about how do we approach risk? How do we, uh, how are decisions made? Um, what are the appropriate ways in for us to communicate within the organizational structure? Uh, those types of things, right? And, and some of those values and norms like, you know, deep interpersonal respect combined with candor and transparency, um, collaborating with people. I think a deep sense of humility is important. Right. Uh, leaders have to be willing in an agile environment to accept the fact that they don't know everything. And that that's not leadership's job to know everything. That some of their best sensing and best responding may happen at very you know at lower levels in the organization. Um, having a, a certainly a deep respect for and involvement with your customer, understanding why you exist and how you're continually adapting to fit their their needs is is, is very important as well as kind of the idea of continuous learning. So those are just some aspects of an agile culture. Um, but if you ignore that piece then, you know, what you're going to have is, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a part of the organization that's trying to do things in a more agile way. They're going to get frustrated with the rest of the organization that's not working that way. Um, and eventually, you know, you put a, a team or a person uh, in a culture that is contrary to kind of how they operate, the culture is going to win. Yeah, the, it's, the, it, there's always a vortex of culture that uh, eats everything out. Uh, so right. the, the idea of like promoting an agile culture means it's not like, oh, and now we're agile. Like there's not an arrival. There's more of like the destination isn't the goal. It's the journey type thing. And yeah, yeah. and that means like as senior leaders, you're going to have to adopt different behaviors, practices and those kinds of ideas. Um, and 
then you're going to have to encourage and reward that out of people within the organization. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, just to, to recap those eight different uh, implications for, you know, how organizations and people and teams can become more agile, it's lead with why, train agile behaviors, create great teams, empower decision-making, support agile behavior, iterate toward better, evaluate organizational structure, promote an agile culture. And these are all described with a little bit more detail in the white paper that we'll post in the show notes. Yeah, perfect. So, so let's take a look at what this means for senior leaders, mid-level managers, and if you're just, you know, a lay employee at the organization, let's kind of just go through some quick bullet points on, hey, now that we've talked through VUCA, some of the ways in which we can deal with VUCA, how should we respond at these different uh, levels of the organization? So if you're a senior leader, what are a couple things that we might want to consider? Yeah, first thing is you got to look in the mirror. (laughs) Your your solution and your problem is probably staring right back at you. Um, You know, we oftentimes get called into organizations to help them become more agile and uh, you know, it's like fix everything else in my organization, but I don't want to change. Yes, you can do anything you want, just not with me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it doesn't it just it just doesn't work, right? Um, that role modeling is absolutely critical. Uh, senior leaders also have to be okay with relinquishing some of their control, right? They need to be able to develop and then delegate and empower decision making at lower levels in the organization. And a lot of this ties back into these norms and these values that they're trying to um, promote that really start to feed into a, a culture um, of agility. Right. So, you know, your effectiveness as a senior leader, if you treat everybody as your arms and legs, is just going to be as fast as you are, which stuff mm-hmm. we've learned from Wikipedia. You know, yes, you're right. The Encyclopedia Britannica had a better editorial team. But the impact and scope of Wikipedia is so much more massive. Not that there's not a role for each and society in the world in your organization, but if you're able to model those um, agile behaviors, relinquish control appropriately, um, which doesn't mean like, oh, well, it's, you know, again, looking at yourself in the mirror, making sure that you're following... uh, good practice as far as relinquish control. Don't, you know, don't hand over the power plant to the accountants per se. Right. And if you're developing that, that culture, um, that's an agile culture, you're going to have a big impact way more than if you command and control everything to death. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So mid-level managers, Ben. Yeah. So I think a a couple things that you got to do as a mid-level manager is, you know, if you're being empowered with decision-making, um, you know, you, you've got to take ownership. And, you know, that can, that can feel different. Uh, you've also got to become much more comfortable working across the, the normal organizational boundaries, um, overcoming some of the natural tendencies we have to defend and guard our turf. Um, you know, we oftentimes get uh, kind of defensive and we like to um, have our corners of, of the organization. Well, you know, we've, we've got to be able to work across those different differences. Uh, and then I, I think another thing that mid-managers need to do is they need to really become curators of teams. They need to uh, help to ha- have teams that flourish, um, promoting some of the behaviors that we know really makes good teams, and allowing for some of the self-organization that is happening. Don't necessarily fight it, right? 
um, if there's good self-organizing that's happen, happening, uh, even encourage it and figure out ways in which it can be promoted and, um, and made even more useful. Yeah, I think the, the term of coach is, is better here. You know, a coach mm-hmm. of a baseball team doesn't go up to bat. Right. Um, but a coach maybe decides the order of at bats, right? Um, which means those mid-level managers need to become as much as they can experts on those, you know, all that great team um literature and how to implement and coach and develop that within an organization. Yes. Okay, so yeah. let's talk about the lower level employee, which that sounds so horrible. So, but if it if, does, if you don't manage anybody, so that could be a high level uh, subject matter expert, like maybe you're a .NET mm-hmm. guru or something like that. But if you're somebody that doesn't necessarily have organizational authority, what what are some of those behaviors and practical examples of how to how to operate in these environments? Yeah, so I think one of them is. Uh that you always have the ability, especially if you have a, a high degree of expertise within your organization, you always have the ability to manage up. And, you know, by, by actually talking with your, your manager, your supervisor, um, about the types of things you're trying to do, trying to sell new ways of doing things to them, and being an advocate for, uh, you know, new ways and better ways of doing things. Um, I think you can also, you know, earn some additional autonomy in your role by demonstrating competence. Uh, you know, get good at stuff that the organization needs. That's a, a really great way for you to start to increase your organizational power because once you start demonstrating that, people are going to start to look to you um, as an expert on things. If, if you're, you know, if you're the Excel weenie, <laughs> by golly, become the best one that you can, right? right? And um, and people will come to you and that, that will, you'll be able to start crafting your job in a much more agile manner. Um, and also, I think you can also learn some of these decision-making skills and demonstrate some good decision-making, um, have a more collaborative type of approach towards, towards solving problems, even at a lower level within the organization. All right, Ben. So wrapping up, um, flourishing in a VUCA world, agile, agility, and why it matters. So. Let's recap VUCA. What are, the, what are the four VUCA elements? Yep. So it's volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Which we all see in everywhere. And I think the key takeaway here is agil- organizational agility is the best response to VUCA. You can't be, mm-hmm. you know, if you survive VUCA by being a stick in the mud, it's just the limbing approach. You, by accident, are surviving right now. So key point, organizational agility is the best practice for thriving that. Agile is some of the processes and behaviors, not just agile project management, which most people tend to focus on, but some of these agile processes are the best ways or some of the good ways that we've discovered to start supporting organizational agility. So, right. Ben, is this stuff just a fad? Yeah, I, I don't really think so. I think agility has, has actually been important for a very long time, um, but is increasingly more important as we deal with rapid technological advancement, increased globalization. Uh, I think it, it is becoming even more important to not just manage change, but to continually sense and respond to change in this more agile way. Yeah. And 
and not the fear monger at all, but if you're in a organization or industry rather that um that isn't super competitive, well, you can get away with a lot less of these behaviors. But more and more and more people find that there's not a corner of the earth that is a safe spot or a less competitive mm-hmm. industry. So the key to flourishing here is to learn about these ideas around teams, agility, agile, and embrace them now so you're ready for when that change comes. Absolutely. And, you know, I think uh, one of the one of the more rewarding aspects of helping organizations become more agile uh, for me has been seeing the the flourishing that happens at the individual level when you start to operate this way. This is actually a much more human way of organizing. It's uh, it's it's highly um, uh, engaging from a, a psychological standpoint. Uh, being able to see the products of your work more rapidly, feeling like you matter within the organization. So you know there are some aspects of agile and uh, agility that are perhaps um, unfamiliar to folks, but once you start doing this stuff. It is a, a truly transformative experience and can help you uh, flourish at the individual level in addition to helping the organization flourish in a VUCA world. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.